Chapter Eleven of Niels Klim's Journey Under the Ground. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winterout. Chapter Eleven: The Voyage to the Land of Wonders. Before I proceed to the description of this sea voyage, I must first caution all severe and unmerciful critics not to frown too much at the narration of things which seem to war against nature and even surpass the faculties of faith in the most credulous man. I relate incredible but true things that I have seen with my own eyes. Raw and ignorant ninnies who have never started a foot from their homes regard everything as fable, whose equal they have never heard of or seen, or with which they have not been familiar from childhood. Learned people, on the contrary, especially those who have a deep knowledge of natural history, and whose experience has proved to them how fruitful nature is in changes, will pass a more reasonable sentence upon the uncommon things narrated. In former days, a people were found in Scythia, called Aramasps, who had but one eye, which was placed in the middle of the forehead. Another people, under the same climate, had their foot soles turned out backwards, and in Albany were people born with gray hairs. The ancient Sanromates, ate only on every third day, and fasted the other two. In Africa were certain families who could bewitch others by their talk, and it is a well-known fact that there were certain persons in Illyria, with two eyeballs to each eye, who killed people by merely looking at them. This, however, they could do only when they were angry. Then their fierce and scintillating stare was fatal to whomever was rash or unfortunate enough to meet it. On the mountains of Hindustan were to be found whole nations with dogs' heads, who barked, and others who had eyes in their backs. Who would believe this, and even more, if Pliny, one of the most earnest writers, had not solemnly assured us that he had neither heard nor read the least hereof, but had seen it all with his own eyes? Yes, who would have imagined that this earth was hollow, that within its circumference were both a sun and moon? if my own experience had not discovered the secret. Who would have thought it possible that there was a globe inhabited by walking, sensible trees if the same experience had not placed it beyond all doubt? Nevertheless, I will not pick a quarrel with anyone on account of his incredulity in this matter, because I must confess that I myself, before I made this voyage, mistrusted whether these tales might not have arisen from the exaggerated representations of seamen or that they were the result of that well-known qualification of this class of men, similarly styled the spinning yarn. In the beginning of the month Radier, we went on board our ship, weighed anchor, and the wind and swelling sails embraced the bending mast, and like an arrow in the air with lightning speed, the keel shrieked through the foaming billows. The wind was fair for some days, during which we poor rowers had a comfortable time for the oars were not needed, but on the fourth day it fell calm. The sails did fall, in haste the seats were fixed, with plashing stroke the oars smote heaven in the waters. For a long time we met with nothing, but as soon as we lost sight of land, strange figures raised themselves from the quaking gulf. They were mermaids who, when the weather becomes calm and the billows rest themselves, rise to the surface and swim toward any passing ship to ask for alms. Their language was so similar to the Martinianac that some of our sailors could speak with them without an interpreter, 
one of these singular creatures demanded of me a piece of meat. When I gave it to her, she looked at me steadily for a time and said, You will become a hero and rule over mighty nations. I laughed at this divination, for I considered it empty flattery, although the sailor swore to it that the mermaid's prediction seldom failed. At the end of eight days we came in sight of land, which the seamen called Picardinia. As we entered the harbor, a magpie came flying towards us, which they said was the Custom House Inspector General. When the dignitary had flown thrice around the ship, he returned to the shore and came back with three other magpies. These seated themselves on the prow of the ship. I came very near bursting with laughter when I saw one of our interpreters approach these magpies with many compliments and heard him hold a long conversation with them. They had come for the purpose of examining our freight and detecting any forbidden articles that we might have concealed. When all was found correct, we were suffered to unload. As soon as this was done, a number of magpies flew to the ship, who proved to be merchants. The captain then went ashore, accompanied by myself and two monkeys, namely our supercargo and an interpreter. After clearing the ship and disposing of the cargo, we returned and shortly set sail. In three days we reached Music Land. After casting anchor, we went on shore, preceded by one of the interpreters, who carried a bass viol in his hand. As we found the whole country about us empty and desolate, discovering nowhere any trace of living creatures, the captain ordered a trumpet to be sounded to inform the inhabitants of our arrival. Before the echoes of the blast from the trumpet had subsided, and they seemed to penetrate farther and reverberate longer than usual from the perfect stillness of this apparently void region, about thirty musical instruments came hopping towards us. These were bass viols. On the very long neck of each was placed a little head. The body was also small and covered by a smooth bark, which, however, did not close entirely around the frame, but was open in front and disposed loosely about them. Over the navel, nature had built a bridge above which four strings were drawn. The whole machine rested on a single leg, so that their motion was a spring rather than a walk. Their activity was very great, and they jumped with much agility over the fields. In short, we should have taken them from musical instruments, as their general appearance purported, if they had not each had two arms and hands. In the one hand was a bow, the other was used upon the frets. When our interpreter would converse with them, he put his viol in its position, and commenced playing an air. They immediately answered him by touching their strings, and thus alternating with each other, a regular musical conversation was carried on. At first they played only adagio, with much harmony. Then they passed over to discordant tunes, and finally concluded with a very pleasant and lively presto. As soon as our people heard this, they leaped and sung for joy, saying that the bargain for the wares was now fixed. Afterwards I learned that the adagio they first played was merely an opening or preface to the conversations, and consisted only of compliments, that the discordant tones which followed were bickerings and disputes about prices, and finally that the sweet-sounding presto indicated that an agreement had been made. At the conclusion of these negotiations, the where stipulated for were landed. The most important of these is colophonium, with which the inhabitants rubbed their bows or organs of speech. Late in the month of Kusan, we set sail from Musicland, 
and after some days sailing, hove in sight of a new land, which, on account of the foul smell that reached our noses at a great distance, our seamen supposed to be Pyglosia. The inhabitants of this land are not very unlike the human race in their general appearance, the sole difference being that these people have no mouth. They speak from the face which turns towards the south when the nose points to the north. The first of them who came on board was a rich merchant. He saluted us after the custom of his nation by turning his back towards us and immediately began to bargain with us for our wares. I kept myself considerably remote during the negotiation, as neither the sound nor the smell of his speech pleased me. To my great horror, our barber was taken sick at this time, so that I was obliged to summon a Pyglosian perfume. As the barbers here are quite as talkative as among us, this one, while shaving me, filled the cabin with so disagreeable a smell that on his departure we were obliged to smoke with all the incense we had on board. We sailed hence to Iceland. This land consisted of desolate rocks covered by eternal snows. The inhabitants, who are all of ice, live here and in the clefts of the rocks on the tops of the mountains, where the sun is never seen, enveloped by almost perpetual darkness and frost. The only light they have comes from the shining rime. These lands, of which I here have given a view, are all subject to the great emperor of Mesendora proper, and are therefore called by seafaring people the Mesendoric Islands. This great and wonderful country, namely Mesendora, is the goal of all extended voyages. Eight days' sail from Iceland brought us to the imperial residence. There we found all that realized, which our poets have fancied of the societies of the animals, trees, and plants, Mesendora being, so to speak, the common fatherland of all sensible animals and plants. In this empire each animal and every tree can obtain citizenship, merely by submitting to the government and laws. One would suppose that, on account of the mixture of so many different creatures, great confusion would prevail among them, but this is far from the case. On the contrary, this very difference produces the most happy effect, which must be attributed to their wise laws and institutions, decreeing to each subject that office and employment to which his nature and special faculties are best fitted. Thus the lion, in consideration of his natural magnanimity, is always chosen regent. The elephant, on account of his keen judgment, is called to sit in the state council. Couriers are made of chameleons because they are inconsistent and know how to temporize. The army consists of bears, tigers, and other valorous animals. In the marine service, on the contrary, are oxen and bulls, seamen being generally hardy and brave people, but severe, inflexible, and not particularly delicate in their living, which corresponds very well with their element. There is a seminary for this class, where calves or sea cadets are educated for sea officers. Trees, for their natural discretion and gravity, are usually appointed judges. Counselors are geese, and the lawyers of the court in ordinary are magpies. Foxes are generally selected as ambassadors, consuls, commercial agents, and secretaries of legation. The ravens are chosen for dealing masters and executors on the effects of those deceased. The buck goats are philosophers, and especially grammarians, partly for the sake of their horns, which they use on the slightest occasion to gore their opponents, 
and partly in consideration of their reverend beards, which so notably distinguish them from all other creatures. The staid yet energetic horse has the suffrage for the mayoralty and other civil dignitaries. Estate owners and peasants are serpents, moles, rats, and mice. The ass, on account of his braying voice, is always the leader of the church choir. Treasurers, cashiers, and inspectors are commonly wolves, their clerks being hawks. The roosters, the cocks, are appointed for watchmen, and the dogs, house porters. The first who came on board of us was a lean wolf or inspector, the same as a customs house officer in Europe, followed by four hawks, his clerks. These took from our wares what pleased them best, proving to us thereby that they understood their business perfectly, and had all its appropriate tricks at their fingers' end. The captain took me ashore with him. As soon as we had set foot on the quay, a cock came towards us, demanding whence we were, the nature of our cargo, and announced us to the inspector general. This latter received us with much courtesy, and invited us to dine with him. The mistress of the house, whom I had heard to be one of the greatest beauties among the female wolves, was not present of the table. The reason of this was, as we afterwards learned, her husband's jealousy, who did not deem it advisable to allow such a handsome wife to be seen by strangers. There were, however, several ladies at table, among others a certain commodore's wife, a white cow with black spots. Next to her sat a black cat, wife to the master of hunt at court, newly arrived from the country. At my side was placed a speckled sow, the lady of a renovation inspector, that species of officership being generally taken from the hog race. It must be observed that the inhabitants of the Mesendoric Empire, although they are animals in figure, have hands and fingers on their forefeet. After dinner the speckled sow entered into conversation with our interpreter, during which she told him that she was over head and ears in love with me. He comforted her in the best manner he could, and promised her his support and aid. Then he turned himself towards me, and endeavored to persuade me to be easy. But when he observed that his flattering and arguments were in vain, he advised me to take to flight, as he knew that this lady would move heaven and earth to satisfy her desires. From this time I remained constantly on board, but the ship itself was not a fortification sufficiently secure from the attacks of this lady, who by messengers and love letters strove to melt the ice that surrounded my heart. Had I not in the shipwreck I afterwards suffered lost my papers, I should now give some specimens of the swine's poetry. I have forgotten it all, except the following lines, in which she praises her being thus. O thou, for whom my too fond soul most ardently doth thirst, for whom my earliest passion in retirement I have nursed, think not my figure homely, though it be endued in bristles. What beauty hath the leafless tree, through which the cold wind whistles? How unadorned the noble horse, when all of his beauteous mane he's shorn! Oh, who would love a purring cat, all in her furlessness forlorn? Ah, look around, my darling pig, look on all living things, from the huge unwieldy mammoth to the smallest bird that sings. Were these not shagged or feathered all, how loudly should we jeer? Who would warmly strive to please e'en man, were man without a beard? After our truck was finished, and a rich freight stowed away, we sailed for home. We had scarcely got into the open sea 
when it suddenly became calm, but soon after the winds breezed up. Having sailed a while with a good wind, we saw again some mermaids who, dripping wet, shot forth and dived between the foaming waves, and now and then emitted horrible shrieks. The sailors were much terrified at this, for they knew by experience that these mournful sounds were presages of storm and wreck. They had scarcely taken in the sails before the whole heavens became veiled in black clouds. Day sinks in night, all nature shudders, then in an instant loose from every point the storm in frightful gusts and devilish uproar breaks, the axis of the globe grates fearful, and thunders clap on clap resound the concave. The waves, din-maddened, tower to mountains, wildly gone her helm, the half-crushed craft tumbles ungovernable. Now despairing shrieks mingling with ocean's roar and crash of heaven rise from the peopled deck. Tis finished. Every movable thing on deck floated off, for besides the ever-rolling billows, an immense rain fell in terrific water-spouts, accompanied by thunder and lightning. It seemed as though all the elements had conspired for our destruction. During the rolling of the ship, our masts were carried away, and then all hope of salvation was gone. Now and then a huge billow rolled over us and carried with it one or two men far beyond the ship. The storm raged more and more. No one cared longer for the vessel. Without helm, without masts, without captain and mates who had been washed overboard, the wreck lay at the pleasure of the waves. Having floated thus for three days, a bauble for the storm, we finally descried a mountainous land in the distance. While rejoicing in the hope of soon reaching this haven, our vessel struck so hard against a blind rock that she was instantly dashed in pieces. In the confusion and terror of the moment, I got hold of a plank, and careless for the rest, thought only of saving myself, so that even now I know nothing of the fate of my companions. I was quickly driven forth by the billows, and this was fortunate for me, for otherwise I should have been crushed among the timbers of the ship, or torn in pieces by the jagged rocks upon which we had been cast, or escaping this, should eventually have perished from hunger and fatigue. I was wafted by the waves within a cape, where the sea was calmer, and where the roaring of an excited ocean sounded less frightfully. When I saw that I was near the shore, I began to scream vigorously, hoping to call the inhabitants to my assistance. I soon heard a sound on the seashore, and saw some of the natives come from a wood nearby. They got into a yawl and sailed towards me, this boat being curiously fashioned of osier and oak branches twisted together. I concluded that this people must be very wild and uncultivated. I was heartily glad when I found them to be men, for they were the first human beings I had met during the whole voyage. They are very like the inhabitants of our globe, who live in hot climates. Their beards are black and their hair curled. The few among them who have long and light hair are considered monsters. The land which they inhabit is very rocky. From the curved ridges of the rocks and the connecting tops of the mountains, which cut the air in multiplied sinuosities, every sound reverberates an echo upon echo from the dales below. The people in the yawl approached the plank on which I floated, drew me from it, carried me to the shore, and gave me to eat and drink. Although the food did not taste very good, yet as I had fasted for three days, it refreshed me very much, and in a short time I regained my former strength. End of chapter 11
Recording by Alan Winteroud. Boomcoach.blogspot.com.